Hi, I'm Drew Landry, Senior Pastor at Spotswood Baptist Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Really appreciate you tuning in to our podcast. We have been thinking about culture and having biblical conversations, asking and answering the question, do I think and live biblically? Today's conversation is with Dr. Andrew Walker on gender identity. Dr. Walker is the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and Apologetics at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He also serves as the Associate Dean of the School of Theology. Dr. Walker has written a book entitled God and the Transgender Debate, What Does the Bible Actually Say About Gender Identity? In our sermon series, I have continued to point us to the Bible as the plumb line and encouraging us to live by the truth of the Bible and not the overcorrections of the pendulum to make sure that we think and live biblically. Dr. Walker, I really appreciate you joining me in this podcast. Pastor Landry, thanks for the invitation, and uh, it's an honor to talk to us on that with Pastor. Who is Andrew Walker? Tell us about uh, your family, maybe a brief story of how you came to faith and your calling as a professor. Yeah, sure. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Andrew Walker. I teach here at Southern Seminary, and uh, I've been married to my wife, Christian, for it'll be, it'll be 15 years in December. And I have three daughters, Caroline, Catherine, and Charlotte, 10, 6, and 3. So just a household full of young little girls, and it's sweet and wonderful, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, honestly, the most exciting thing I can say uh, about how I came to faith um, is, and this this is not an exaggeration at all, it was my my wife's testimony when mm. she was then just a girl in my youth group mm. that um, I believe the Lord used to, to lead me to him. She, we were, we were 15. This was October 25th, 2000 in central Illinois in Jacksonville, Illinois at Lincoln Avenue Baptist church. Wow. And this girl, this girl named Christian stood up to give her testimony. And she talked about how uh, as a pastor's kid, she thought that she was just a Christian but she learned that she was just playing the game and that she really hadn't been converted. And, and the Lord had showed her that she needed to be really saved. And I'll, I'll never forget where I was sitting or what I was wearing. <laughs> the phrase, the phrase playing the game mm, utterly mm. like knocked me over in my seat. And I was the Christian kid. I was the good kid, mm-hmm. but I just felt that um, it was more of a, a facade or kind of a script or an act than it was, motivating from sincere faith. And so I talked to my pastor after that and I said, Hey, this is really embarrassing, but I don't think I'm a Christian. I need to get Mm -hmm. saved. Mm -hmm. And so, um, my, my, this, this girl Christian was with me when I accepted Christ and, uh, ended up marrying her. So things, (laughs) things turned out pretty well. Yeah, I would say (laughs) they would. I'm not sure about being in a house full of three girls. I have two daughters and you do know they'll all be teenagers at the same time, right? I, I have heard that. I have heard that. But uh, at least at least as ten year olds and six year olds things aren't too complicated yet. But that might change as they get older. Hang on for the ride, friend, it's changing. <laughs> oh. Hey, of all of the books that could be written, why God and the transgender debate? Sure. Well, I mean, here's the thing is when you know, in, in a traditional pathway of, of writing a book, you know, it's the author who sets out to, to pitch a publisher. Um, and this is exactly actually opposite of what happened. Mm. There was a publisher who knew that there was a gap 
or kind of an empty void yeah. of kind of evangelical reflection, thinking about gender and, and human embodiment. Um, and so they, they went searching for an author. And I had a friend of mine who knew this publisher um, and knew I had been interested in LGBT issues um, and kind of defending Christian ethics um, from kind of the sexual revolution. And so they approached me about potentially writing this and we thought we would, we would be a good fit and we were. And so I think ultimately, um, you know, for a whole publisher to recognize that there's a lack of resources is, is pretty eye opening, isn't it? I mean, to, to say yeah, that um, yes. we, we don't have good evangelical resources quite yet, uh, how to think about the transgender controversy. And I, and I started writing the book in 2016, I think that's right. And, you know, we're now in 2021 yeah. and it seems like we're in a different civilizational epoch from where we were even in 2016. So the, 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 the pace of the conversation has so rapidly advanced that um, actually, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I have a second edition of the book coming out in February. Well, I was um, going to encourage is, that. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of, and, and there's, there's about 6,000 new words of material and then some updates to existing chapters. Um, but, you know, this, you know, it's, it's after an author writes a book that they realize what they left out of the book. Mm, mm. Um, and so this is the second edition is me kind of filling in some gaps that I learned were present um, the first time the book came around. And so I think the big picture, why was this book written? Well, this book was written because for, you know, from the Judeo Christian tradition, how, however long you date that um, there has been a, solid, concrete understanding of what it means to be a male and a female. Mm -hmm. And over the last 20 or 30 years, we've had um, what was a tacitly implied and accepted norm utterly exploded in Western civilization. Um, and so when you, when you ask the question in the culture today, what is a man and what is a woman, um, there, the, the formally agreed upon definition is no longer the agreed upon definition. Mm -hmm. So we've had a, a massive tectonic shift in our culture. Um, and so we need to go back to what the Bible teaches on what it means to be male and female, because um, as, as I make clear and how I think about these issues, this isn't just about Christians being right. right. Um, it's not just about us having the right interpretation of the Bible, although we need to have both of those things. This is about the common good and about human flourishing and about preventing an onslaught of victims from yeah. being um, present in the culture. And the longer we go um, in this conversation culturally, the more victims we're seeing. And um, I actually think we're going to reach a point here in the next couple of decades where we're going to start seeing malpractice lawsuits against surgeons and psychologists for the harm that they've inflicted on psychologically vulnerable persons. I am so thankful you mentioned that. I, I, I'm seeing that in, in a CD published in uh, the United Kingdom of uh, a teaching surgeon, a couple of other people who were, were saying we're, we're performing experiments on an entire generation. And uh, what we absolutely are. Is. I'm so thankful you said that. Well, um, and, and it's worth noting here, it's worth noting here that to, to show you the exploratory nature of this, um, 
we have very, very liberal progressive societies yes. like Denmark and, and the UK that are now that are now reversing their standards of care procedures because they're realizing that these procedures and these hormone replacement therapies are not resolving the bigger problems at stake within these people. And so the fact that the standard of treatment is so fluid, mm-hmm. it indicates to me how exploratory yes. and how dangerous this science really is. You, you mentioned the, the epoch that we're living in, the season that we're living in, surfacing the Bible. If, if you were speaking to some Christians, say as I do as a pastor, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, are there specific passages of Scripture that you would encourage us as Christians to be familiar with so that um, we could speak well to our culture? You mentioned in your book, uh, presenting a mm-hmm. faith that can cope with reality. Is there, is there any place that you would point us? Sure. Uh, just a couple passages. Um, there's there's uh, dozens of passages, but in the interest of time, I, I'll, I'll only cite two. Okay. Um, the first and foremost is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Um, what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is what I call the Genesis blueprint. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that God created humanity. He created humanity male and female, um, and he created male and female for one another. Um, and so in Genesis 1, we have kind of the very blueprint for creation handed down to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we learn in Genesis chapter one is that a, the categories of male and female uh, objectively and immutably exist. That means they're not, they're not categories that you can morph in and out of. Yes. Um, And then we also learn that tied to being male and female are it is the capacity for reproduction. So in Genesis 1, it says male and female, he made them in his image. Then it says in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. So so tied to an understanding of maleness and femaleness is the capacity to engage in acts of reproduction. So what mm-hmm. that means is our bodily design and what our design is organized or in terms of in terms of its capacity, that's that's indicative of, of what a man and a what woman is, um, and what that's that's what all of, of modern biology has understood as well. You classify organisms yes. based on their reproductive organization, um, and we have completely jettisoned that in our society to make male and female completely dependent upon one's internal psychology mm-hmm. and what we want to call their kind of expressive individualism. So Genesis chapter one is, is the big picture I point us to. And then I would also point us to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is talking um, to a crowd and it says he looked on these people um, with compassion mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and, and it says a bruised reed he will not break. And what this language indicates, that the metaphor that Jesus is using to describe his ministry is one of compassion and gentleness for those who need love and and care and compassion. And so when we look at the the transgender community, um, you know, the temptation is to think of this as solely as a culture war issues and and, and to have debates about bathroom bills and public policy, which we we need to have those debates. Mm -hmm. But at at the end of the day— Gender-confused individuals are still made in God's image. They still need love. What, what they're ultimately looking after and searching for is an identity. And 
the beauty of being a Christian is that we get to say to someone, um, your identity is to be found in the fact that you are made in God's image. You're not made in the culture's image. Um, you're not made in, in terms of what the majority's image says you are made. You are made in God's image. Um, and so you see psychologically vulnerable people yes. um, as a snapshot yes. of the transgender population. And so to me, the fact that Jesus describes himself as, as not wanting to, to apply too much pressure to vulnerable people who are hurting, it sends the message to us that, that regardless of how the culture interprets us in terms of us not being loving or, or, or caring about the culture war, at the end of the day, what we're truly motivated by is love and human flourishing. Now, you mentioned something about classification of species as male and female. Do, do you think it's important for us as, as pastors or, or Christians um, to remind our congregations that, that the Bible and science actually agree on what it means to be binary whenever it comes to uh, this discussion about gender? Where, where would you place that on the spectrum of this is important or not? Oh, Pastor, I mean, so, so, so important because one of, one of the things I realized after writing my book is— um, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians, they rightly have the instinct to, to trust the Bible. Um, but if you ask, if you ask this, uh, the average Christian, what is a man or what is a woman, they would just r- repeat back to you Genesis chapter 1, mm-hmm. which is absolutely correct. Genesis chapter yeah. 1 is authoritative. The question we have to ask ourselves, and this is where biology and categories like natural law and general revelation really really come into focus is what portrait of reality is Genesis 1 giving us? Is it giving us um, a a narrow sectarian Christian interpretation on reality, or is it actually bearing witness to reality as it truly is? And the answer to that is, yes, the Bible is actually giving us a framework for created order as it is. And so when we look at the transgender issue, what I want to say to someone is, Hey, if you're if you're adopting the transgender worldview, you're not just disagreeing with with Genesis chapter one and, and special revelation. You're actually disagreeing with the structure of reality itself, because reality in the Christian tradition it has essence, it has objectivity to it. It's yes. something that is not constructed and is a matter of the of the will, but reality is something that we discover and receive and live within because it's, it's ordered and designed by God. And so really the transgender issue is a massive philosophical debate on rival conceptions of metaphysics. Who's, whose version of reality is authoritative. Mm. And I trust, I trust a creator's account of reality, not, not this 30 year old experiment of radical gender experimentation. Yeah, I, I think, you know, where we are in this season, 21st century, we have a tendency to, tendency to think that Scripture and science are, are mutually I- exclusive, and, and I don't need science to prove the truth of Scripture, but when it comes to human sexuality, they are in perfect agreement. And not only Absolutely. are Christianity, but Judaism and, and Islam agree man and woman. I mean, there's just no getting around uh, the way God has revealed truth to us in, in creation. Um, now, l- let me ask you this question because I have, I have my own convictions here about social media. Uh, you've written about how we got where we are. 
how much influence do you think social media has on our culture today in uh, maybe putting forward uh, this whole gender identity debate, debate when it comes to being transgender? Oh, I think it's an, an absolutely incalculable influence. I would say that on at least a, a couple levels. One is you look at a, at a place like Twitter, for example, which is where I spend most of my social media time, is um, you know you have a fear of crowds and mm-hmm. a fear of mobs and the fear of cancel culture. And so if you're found to be um, saying things that now disagree with Twitter's extant, uh, standard of, of hate speech, yeah. um, you are liable to getting canceled. Yeah. I mean, and just last week, I had two friends who went into Twitter prison because they dared to say <laughs> during the Olympics that a biological male weightlifter is still a biological male weightlifter. I mean, they got they literally got in Twitter jail because they stated facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's I think there's the the fear of cancellation that drives a lot of this kind of hysteria and social pathology. I would also say too, when you look at something like like YouTube, um, we have seen the rise of um, people's kind of online testimonies of them coming out. Uh, and, and telling of their testimony and narrative of, of coming out as trans and, and, their, and their journey of transitioning. And so this, uh, I mean, this, this gives rise to a whole study that was done out of Brown University, uh, what they called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that this is more or less a social contagion. Yes. That if you introduce these categories into the culture and you introduce them to impressionable, malleable categories like teenagers and middle schoolers. Um, and you tell them, you know, you should question who you are. You should question these received traditions and these received narratives. Um, of course. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine the difficulty right now of how, of what it means to be a teenager right. growing up in a, in a context where um, during the most emotionally fraught anxious time of one's mm. life in their adolescence, you're not only dealing with emotional uncertainties of, of who you are, you're now having progressive voices tell you that you should literally question the very essence of your body itself. Yeah. Um, and so again, like I, I care about this issue because I think we are doing harm. I agree. Um, to people. I agree. Now, one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I see this in our culture and some of the reading that I'm doing in this sermon series that we're in having conversations with our culture, is there a difference between sex and gender? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, And there's different ways of answering that. In in an ideal world, I would say no, Um, but that's not the world we live in right now. So what we would define, what we would define as sex is traditionally referred to these as these immutable biological realities. Mm-hmm. So if you're a male, you have XY chromosomes. Yes. If you're a female, you have XX chromosomes. And then those chromosomes are what um, trigger kind of the cascading effects of male-female differentiation in utero. Um, so then you have, you know, your primary sex characteristics, which refers to your, your genitalia. Then you have your secondary sex characteristics, that refer to kind of the, the bodily shape and design of males and females when they're adults. So there's definitely a concrete, objective, immutable category of biological sex. Yes. Gender is, the, is, is a definition or a term that means basically 
how a culture manifests the reality of a given sex. And so uh, it's the cultural association of biological sex. Mm -hmm. And this is where the term gender gets a little bit dangerous um, because gender norms from one culture to the next do change. But regardless of how the gender norms change, all gender norms are designed to do is to reflect the, the reality of these creational distinctions and these creational boundaries. So if you go to Scotland, men wear kilts, yes. which in an American context, those look like skirts, which is what women wear. So it's, it's not as though Scottish men are feminine. It's that in that culture, Cultural. kilts are something that their culture has designated. This is what it means to be masculine. This is what it means to be male. And in our culture, you know, predominantly women wear um, more pink than men. Although, you know, I have a pink polo shirt myself. That's totally fine. But we associate right. pink with with femininity. Uh, but that could change from one culture to the next. The, the baseline foundation is regardless of what the culture is assigning as a gender norm, it's, it's trying to bear witness to the reality that males and females are different. And because they're different, culture is trying to find culturally appropriate ways to communicate that difference. I love what you said, the baseline. And, and culture is a, a moving target, and we have to have a baseline of truth. And I think our source of truth determines the validity of, of that baseline. Uh, I talk a lot about Absolutely. biblical worldview. Um, why is it critical, uh, you as uh, a, a professor in theology, why is it critical for us to have a biblical worldview when it comes to our understanding of gender, sex, God's authority to speak, that baseline of truth? Why, why is that biblical worldview important? For one, I would say we need to have a worldview and be conscientious of it because we need to have intentional, deliberate consideration of what sources mm-hmm. are informing or influencing how we're thinking and seeing and, and, and feeling about the world. So yes. we just need to have a category for, am I aware of what is forming me? Because it's impossible for you not to be formed. It's a question of what is forming you. Um, so I think there's, there's that overarching question of, are you self-aware mm-hmm. um, at all? Secondly, I would say, um, Downstream from that reality, it's important to have a, a biblical worldview around sexuality and gender, because I would say um, if you jettison a biblical worldview on these subjects where gender or, or sexuality and sex are immutable biological categories, you then rip from underneath you um, the ability to have any kind of stable foundation on which to stand. And this is, this is one of the more insidious effects of the transgender movement mm. is in the interest of tolerance, diversity, and inclusion, what we're really doing to people is robbing them of the ability to have any firm foundation on which to base their lives. Well And said. that's I why we need to have a worldview. Yes, I could not agree more. Thank you. Have you been listening to my sermons? Uh, what, what, what would you say, and just a little bit of a transition from, from foundation to some of our theology to maybe some application. I've been a pastor over 30 years. 
I'm heartbroken when I talk to parents, when one of their children tells them that they are a homosexual or to use the term gay. So how do I, how does the church help parents understand that they didn't do anything wrong? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think what you have to understand is um, how children mature into adults. I mean, we, we you know, obviously we have to have biblical parenting and we have to have kind of goals and in, in, in line with, with what Scripture is, is hoping children turn out to be. Um, but we all know situations in our life of children who are raised in godly homes mm-hmm. that that end up jettisoning and, and leaving the faith. And I think it would be cruel to say in those situations that it's absolutely explicable along the lines of parents having been bad Christian examples for their kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are numerous instances in the media that we could point to of, yeah. of kids who have rejected you know, I, I'm thinking of John Piper's son, for yeah, example, yeah. who's made national headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say around like the homosexuality issue is, um, you know, in my situation, I, I've heard of parents who have children that identify as LGBT, and it's very apparent that they love their children and they're wanting to have a relationship with their children, but they feel like if they try to have a relationship with their child, that they're going to be judged by their local church. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I've had to tell these parents, well, that's because the local church has gotten this wrong. Yes. Um, there, I, I, what I like to tell people in this situation, there is no evidence from Scripture that a child's sin nullifies that child's relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. So a child is always your child, regardless of of how they're living or how they're identifying. Um, and so, you know, if, if I had a child in this situation, I would say to them, I love you no matter what. You are always welcome in my home. If you are going to sever this relationship or, or if you're going to pull back from this relationship, it's not because I'm the one who's initiating that. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And so I think this is kind of a, this is a, a, a larger question that kind of local churches need to be more intentional about. And so I, mean, I would encourage preachers, you know, to, to have that conversation that are we creating the type of churches where parents who are struggling with a wayward child doesn't feel like they're being judged. So I think this is, I mean, not to oversimplify things. I think the, the preached word rightly interpreted can really address this within the life of the local church. You, you raise another question. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. Okay, I've had this one as a pastor to deal with in a, in a biblical, gracious way. When that adult child who is in a homosexual lifestyle wants to come and visit for the weekend and bring their partner, yeah. what do the parents do? How do, you, how do I as a pastor help them? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say in that situation that, um, you know, this is where you'd have to honor your own conscience. And I would say... You know, listen, you and your partner are welcomed at my house, um, but I do not recognize this relationship as biblically um, um, permissible. And so if you're going to be in my house, I would ask for you to sleep in separate rooms mm-hmm. while you're here at my house. Um, and so that, that way, I mean, what are you doing in that situation? You're communicating, 
I want you here. Right. I want I want your significant other here as well because we want to be a, a place that shows hospitality and love. Yes. At the same time, at the same time, you know, it, it, it seems appropriate that they would also respect your conscience and your values as well. I mean, if tolerance is a if tolerance is a true word, it has <laughs> to run in both now. directions, right? <laughs> Here we go. Right? It has to go in both both directions. <laughs> you would, so you would I think. would just say you would think. Right, you would think. <laughs> I, I, and, and you know what? That's that's something that I have said to parents. Be welcoming. Open your home. That's what Scripture teaches us, hospitality. But at the same time, I think you can be accepting without being affirming. And I don't know if we've communicated that yeah. well as pastors uh, from, from the pulpit. I, and I think that's maybe what some people are wrestling with. You know, the line is hard and fast, and if you cross it, you're done. And uh, we don't see that in, in Jesus in the way that, that he related to people. Um, let me, let me ask another question and and man, we're in the deep end of the pool. How do we as pastors help our churches overcome being labeled as, as homophobes and, and how do we minister to, how do we express compassion to, again, just from your perspective to, uh, the homosexual community, the transgender community, the LBGTQ plus, how do, how do we do this? So, I mean, I, there's no easy way to do this because mm-hmm. I would say a church who is being thoroughly biblical and thoroughly loving, um, there's very little situation where I would predict that this that this church wouldn't still be accused of being transphobic or homophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is what I, I, I talk about this in my class all the time, that that's what I call the gospel of winsomeness. It's this idea that if, if we think we're winsome enough and if we think we're we're nuanced enough and we are communicating in all the right ways, we think that we can kind of make those who disagree with us um, find this more acceptable and more tolerable. And the further we're going as a culture, I just don't think that's really the case. And so what I would say to churches is um, you need to be sure that you're doing nothing internally to give justification for your critics to heap mm. more scorn on you mm. and more contempt on you. But here's what I would also say. If you are being loving and you're being biblical, regardless of your intent, an outside culture that is rebellious mm-hmm. against God's word may not find your love that you're intending to be received as loving. And this is where, excuse me, I would simply go back to, you know, second Timothy where it says, if you desire to live a godly life, they're going to be yeah. persecuted. Yes. So give no reason to cause anger or frustration um, from your audience, but just be willing to receive the fact and accept the fact that despite your efforts, you might just be, you might be the nicest, most smiling bigot out there, but you're still a bigot (laughs) to these individuals. Yeah, I, 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 I have shared with our people, the gospel is inclusive but exclusive at the exact same time. And I agree when Absolutely. you have two convictions, two sets of truth norms that are diametrically opposed, regardless of how loving we try to be, we're just not going to be accepted by some. But we don't want to give excuse, don't want to give credence to the fact that we're being rejected because we have rejected certain people whom Jesus died for. Um, right. 
I tell our people all the time, uh, there's no way to cover everything in one uh, sermon, and I'm certainly never the smartest guy in the room. No way to cover everything in one podcast. But if there's anything you think that uh, maybe we have missed in our discussion or from your book and now uh, the update to your book, if there, if there's, is there any one thing that uh, Andrew Wood Walker would say today to, hey, here is what you need to know and here's what you need to do, what would that be? So this is more of an exhortation than it is like filling in the gaps on something. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been engaged in these issues of, you know, the defense of marriage, the defense of Christian sexuality, uh, these issues of gender debate. And here's what I would say to people who find themselves afraid, discouraged, mm. and kind of, you know, their, their knees buckling, so to speak. What I would say is, listen, uh, as one of my friends like to say, like to say, we are not the weird ones for believing that the categories of male and female are static, concrete, immutable, objective categories. Mm. Culture is the weird one for assuming that these categories are fluid and can be kind of morphed into and out of at will. And so really it's, it's on the burden of a secular progressive society to have to answer for quite frankly, their absurd and dangerous conclusions. That's good. Um, because I'll be honest with you, when I engage with these debates online, um, it's not that I'm the smartest person in the room. Um, it's it's the fact that I'm willing to actually have some spine and tell people that mm. I think they're wrong and mm. they don't have any good reasons for believing what they believe. That people tend to back down and realize that they aren't as confident as they thought that they are. And so I would simply want to say to people, um, we need, we need more grounding in these categories of general revelation Mm -hmm. to know, to know the intricacies of creation order and how God has created this world to be. And we need to go on offense and recognize that there is nothing to be embarrassed about that. We actually have a greater word of life and hope to give than a, than a world that's constantly redefining what hope is. Mm. Um, the Christians are the ones who get to, who, who get to stand somewhere, plant their flag in the ground and not move. Uh, and it's, it's the secular society and the progressive secular worldview that's constantly adopt, uh, adapting and changing to fit its own demand, yeah. which then 20 years later, it's changing Changes again. again. <laughs> right. I th- what would I think? This is just my opinion. Maybe we have accepted biblical illiteracy as the norm for too long, and now we find ourselves rushing to try to catch up to where our culture is. And I think it's going to land on the shoulders of the leaders of the church and and those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We we have got to do something about our biblical illiteracy. And I love what you said: plant the flag. Don't be afraid to say this is right and this is wrong. Uh, Jesus very clear, yes, yes, and no, no. So we have to be able to uh, validate our convictions and validate truth because our source of truth in every religion in the world has a book that they believe is their source of truth. So our source of truth speaks to everything that we're dealing with in our culture yesterday, today, and tomorrow because our God doesn't change. Uh, I could not agree more. 
This has certainly been a very, very helpful conversation. I think I'd love just to stay on the phone with you and talk about this for hours. <laughs> I don't know if anybody would listen to it, but uh, you have, Dr. Walker, thank you so much. You have helped really affirm some of the things that we're talking about. Uh, you've given credence to some of the convictions that we are preaching and teaching, and uh, I look forward to your book being out. Of course, now, when 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 sales go through the roof because of this podcast, you're going to have to send some type of, I don't know, percent. We should have we should have negotiated percentage before we got this thing started. So. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, I love it. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, serving at Southern Seminary, uh, training the next uh, generation of pastors, and I think they are going to have uh, more of a challenge, perhaps, pastoring in the culture than maybe I've had. But thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you for not compromising on truth. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Pastor Landry, thank you so much, and um, it's a privilege to get to talk to um, Southern Baptist pastors, just to the seminaries designed to serve. So, thank you so much, and I really, again, really, really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast, Conversations About Our Culture. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. It will also be on our website at spotswood.org. Let's continue to have the conversations. Let's understand how important a biblical worldview is. As followers of Jesus Christ, let's not be afraid to say that some things are true and some things are false. As Dr. Walker said, plant the flag. We need to be compassionate. Jesus looked at the culture. What a great statement. And saw a bruised reed. So let's, in the love of Jesus Christ, continue to reach out to our culture and have those conversations. You have a seat at the table. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I look forward to having you join us in our next podcast as we continue to have conversations about our culture.